So, I was sitting in In-N-Out with my friend, and one of those friends that you can have these really interesting conversations with that you don't have a conversation with most people at In-N-Out with, but uh, he, somewhere in the middle of, you know, eating french fries, um, he asked, Brandon, do you consider yourself an ambitious person? To which I realized the conundrum of that question. On one hand, if I say no, it means I'm lazy. (laughs) And I'm a good-for-nothing person who sits around waiting for life to give me handouts. But on the other hand, if I say yes, I sound egotistical. And like I am the next Napoleon Bonaparte wanting to take over everyone and everything in my path. And I found the question interesting because I began to think and wrestle with the idea of ambition. Is ambition godly? And then I think of passages like the one we're going into tonight, and I I began to resist the idea of ambition. If this is ambition, I want nothing to do with it. But then there's other parts that we're going to see tonight where if there is no ambition, you want nothing to do with that either. So I think as in most things in life, what you want to do is land somewhere in the middle. It's been said that you can accomplish almost anything you want to if you're willing to pay the price. I think that's key. You you can accomplish literally almost anything you want to if you're willing to pay the price. Think about that for a second. If I want to be a New York Times best-selling author, There's no reason I couldn't do it if I invested everything in my being for that goal. I quit my job. I hide from my family. I read everything I can about writing. I spend years writing and practicing. I start kissing up to different publishers and different writers around the world and going to these conferences. I devote my life to this. Why couldn't I become that? The truth is, most of us don't want to pay the price required to achieve this or that. And it comes down to the fact that we are married or we have families, we just look at them and say, I'm not putting them on the altar for this dream. And whatever the, you know, New York Times, it's just something I thought you you could aim for. If you want to be the next Billy Graham, I mean, maybe that takes some of God's anointing too. (laughs) But uh, you name it, all of us have at some point in our life big dreams but most of us aren't living the big dream does that mean you failed does that mean you lack ambition or does it mean that when it came down to it the price outweighed the prize was there wisdom involved there so tonight's question has your ambition gone too far And a sub-question to this is going to be, or do you have enough ambition? (laughs) So has your ambition gone too far? There's some guidelines, some signs in here that um, we will see if yours indeed has. So let's go go ahead. Chapter 15 has um, a lot of sacrifice laws, which we've looked at a lot in Leviticus. So we're going to go right into the juicy climax here in Numbers 16. So Numbers 16, read with me. Oh, and before we do, remember, they're on their 40-year death march. Israel's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad 40-year death march through the wilderness. And 
we are going to see it gets very ugly. So, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, Korah, he's a Levite. That means he works around the tabernacle. And he has a couple minions. Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Heleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. So Korah, with his minions, grabs 250 influential people of good reputation, people that are chiefs of other people. So this is 250 representatives of many more people. We have a full-on huge representation of the people of Israel coming in the form of Korah and his 250 before Moses. Now, it says they rose up before him. It doesn't mean that they just came up to him and said, Hi, Moses. It means that they came up against him. They are unhappy with Moses. And Korah has gained quite a following. And so, in verse 3, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You, Moses and Aaron, have gone too far. Why are they angry? Well, was it not Moses who said, let's go into the promised land? The spies go in and say, ah, there's giants. And they come back and say, let's not go in. And Moses and Caleb and Joshua are like, no, we need to go. God said, go. And the people are like, no. So Moses said, fine. God said, we're now going to march in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation dies off and the next generation will take it. So things have gotten really bad. We don't know how much time has passed. Has it been just days, months, weeks? But it's probably recent enough to the event of Israel not going to the promised land that Korah begins to grumble. Well, if I was Moses, if I was the leader, I would find a way to get us into the land. We wouldn't be doing this 40-year death march and people start listening. He's got a podcast. He's on the radio. He's got a newspaper publication. He's written a book. You know, it's not easy to crumble against leadership and take it down in that sense. Korah's doing the cowardly thing. He's getting followers and listening to him gripe. And now finally the time's come. Korah, you've got to do something. So he stands up against Moses and says, You, Moses, have gone too far. What, do you think you're the only one that can bring God to us? We can do it too. The whole congregation's holy. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning, the Lord will show who he is, or who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom, you, uh, the, man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. I love this. Look what Moses says. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. (laughs) Just puts that right back in their face. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you 
that the Lord God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Wow. So Moses just says, look, you guys are rebelling against God now. This is nothing with me and Aaron. And he puts up a challenge. Tomorrow, let's all show up before God in the tabernacle. Right at the entrance of the tent. We'll bring our censers um, in which would be coals and you would put incense on them. And it would bring a little incense smoke. Something you would do right in front of the veil of the tabernacle. In front of the Holy of Holies. And so they're to gather in the outer courts, 250 of them, and Aaron. And they're going to swing their censers and see who God chooses. Pretty simple task. Um, One other note that's very interesting. I love verse 4. I love Moses' response to this rebellion. Moses heard it and fell on his face. He didn't go on Facebook and tell everyone what a bozo Korah is and expose the dirt of the 250 followers with links to other articles, to other articles, to these sources. He didn't tweet a bunch of rash comments about how dumb they are, about how they're a threat to our national security. Um, I mean, there are those real things. I'm not trying to actually point the finger at real things right now. But uh, he didn't. Moses didn't attack. He fell down. It's almost as if this is a man who never really wanted to lead the people of Israel and realized that, look, if God doesn't want me to lead these people anymore, so be it. I'm here because he put me here. And I will leave if he's done with me. I didn't fight to gain this position, so I will not fight to maintain this position. Yet, the leadership we see modeled in modernity is people fighting to gain leadership, so they have to fight to maintain it. They have to attack their attackers. Moses did not take the approach. Full believer that God put him there. Um, I said I wasn't going to do the leadership thing. Well, there's some of it. Okay, so verse 12. So the test is on. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. And they said, we will not come up. Now, look at verse 13. Now they're playing the game Moses is playing. Remember how Moses, they said, you've gone too far, Moses. And then Moses said, you've gone too far. And then he said in verse 9, is it too small of a thing for you that you already work in the tabernacle? And now in verse 13, they're going to copy him. Is it too small a thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey? Wait, wait, wait. wait. Let's read that again. They come up to Moses. We will not come up. Is it too small a thing that you have brought us up out of a land that flows with milk and honey? What? What? Hold on. What Bible are they reading? Moses brought them out of Egypt, a land of slavery, to go to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're like, is it too small a thing that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? 
they, they got this whole thing backwards, as if Moses wants to lead them back to Egypt. Oh, the whole thing was just a joke. Let's go back, guys. It was a really good trip. No, they have got, they're the ones, they are the ones who rebelled against God's command to go in because there's giants. Oh, no. They didn't want to do it. It was them. But this is what happens in the failure is they want somebody to blame in their anger and their wrath. And it's always easy and cheapest to point the finger at the people on top. And so here they get a huge following. Follow the crowd. You'll always succeed. And they're pointing the finger at Moses. So Moses, I really respect his response in all of this. He could so easily play the same game. But Moses continues to just let them air their foolishness. As the Proverbs say, even a fool is considered wise when he doesn't talk. You... You want to expose someone's foolishness? Let them talk. Don't cover it up for them by talking back to them. Just let them keep mouthing. And Jesus said wisdom is known by its children. That means wisdom is discovered sooner or later when you see the result of things. Just let them talk. Moses does that. As you can see, they're pretty dumb in verse 13. Uh, listen, wilderness, that you might make yourself a prince over us. Verse 13. So 14. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you not, or will you put out the eyes of these men? Now, that's, that um, commentator said was a Hebrew phrase. It's sort of like an idiom. We would say, pull the wool over your eyes. That's what this means. Uh, it's the equivalent to Hebrew. So, are you pulling the wool over our eyes? Uh, we will not come up. We're not going to fall for your tricks, Moses. You notice that when you conspire, you become suspicious of everyone else's conspiracy? The innocent are innocent. They, they see everything innocently. But those who are conspiring against leadership are suspicious that leadership's conspiring against them. And that's just how it is. They, they see Moses through their own lens. Um, verse 15, Moses was very angry. Dude, give the guy some credit, some space. He's human, and I would be angry too. It's not what you feel it's how you deal with what you feel, right? So Moses is very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. They're basically accusing him of being a tyrant and taking all their stuff. And Moses is like, God, you know what a lie that is. Don't respect their offering. So verse 16, Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord. You and they and Aaron tomorrow, and let every one of you take a censer and put incense on it, and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers for the 250 rebels. You also and Aaron each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Judgment day. We're going to find out who's right. 19. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Who's, run, who's running the show? Korah brought everyone to watch the showdown. Hey, everyone, watch me take Moses down. He, he assembles the congregation. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Verse 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces again. And said, O oh God, the God of spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and you will be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. 
So Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. Come out, what's the commotion? Why is everyone leaving us? 28, Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has been not of my own accord. In other words, Moses is saying, I didn't set myself up, God set me up. So watch the proof of this. 29, if these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, in other words, natural death, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, say, um, how about the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. I would have loved to say they despised me. Moses is keeping things in perspective. 31. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Shul, and the earth closed over them. Now they're here, now they're not. And they perished from the midst of the assembly. All of Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And the fire, and now at the climax, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Can you just see them with their incense before the tent waiting for God to vindicate them? And then they see the earth opening up behind them and, oh, there goes our leader and all of his family and all his possessions. And then they turn back to the tabernacle like, we're holy, right? Oh, no. (laughs) You can just see how that ended for them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell Eliezer, I'm in 37, by the way, tell Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze and scatter the, fire, uh, scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. So the censers that they left behind, those are going to be used. Uh, what it's, what it's going to keep on saying is that they're going to hammer them out and make a covering for the altar. So even the rubble from these rebels is going to be used for good. Verse 41. You would think, wouldn't you, that this settled the score. But on the next day, All the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. How did Moses do it? And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, it's the second time, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces the third time. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put fire on it from off the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. 
So Aaron took... If there's ever time to even with your enemies, let him die! But here they're taking the effort to save them. In 47, Aaron took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Man, he stood, that's such a great phrase. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. That's you, friends. That's what the church is. We stand between the dead and the living. And it's not our calling to just let the dying die. It's to bridge, bring the death to life. Um, 49. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Af and the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. Wow. Um, even under the best leaders in history, Moses, there are problems. Korah was a problem. And even after you think that was dealt with definitively, oh, hmm, if the ground opens up and swallows him, you know it's God. Oh, look, it happened. It should settle the score. It didn't. They're still grumbling against Moses. Even the best of leaders have problems. One thing to learn from that, um, humankind just does not like being led by people that are not themselves. And now, as if there was still question, in chapter 17, we're going to confirm that Aaron is the chosen one uh, for the priesthood. So if you're, if you, there's a little nuance we need to make clear here. Um, Levites and priests. So priests are Levites. Levite, the Levites are a tribe of Israel. Uh, the Levites were in charge of the tabernacle itself, like moving it, carrying it, uh, guarding it, just taking care of the structure. Uh, Within the Levites, there is Aaron and his sons, and those are priests. And the priests are the ones who were actually doing the worship and handling the sacred uh, rituals with God. So, so there was a bit of a hierarchy there. So the Levites were involved, but they weren't quite on the inner circle as priests. That's why Korah, a Levite, he's trying to get one step further up the ladder. And he's trying to accuse Aaron as being irrelevant as a priesthood and that now Korah and his sons and his 250 supporters are going to be the new priests. So, um, so what chapter 17 is going to do is say, no, no, I want Aaron to be the priest. So yeah, Moses is the leader. We confirm that. Now Aaron is his priest. Chapter 17. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one for each father's house. From all their chiefs, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. So each tribe is bringing a staff, the chief of the tribe. They would have, each staff likely had its own unique shape or, or thing, or image, emblem carved into it. And they put their names into it. So the staff was a symbol of leadership. And so these symbols of leadership, these were not just hiking staffs. You know, like, oh, I'm walking a lot. No, these were symbols of status. And so they were brought into the tabernacle and they were left there overnight. And God said, um... The one I pick, that staff will blossom, which would be nothing short of miraculous. God is going to create blossoms. A dead piece of wood will become a living tree of the person he chooses. So when they wake up on the next day, verse 8, 
Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. That's so good. So now they have a snack. Then Moses brought all the staffs out, and he basically tells them, hey, look, now you know. Um, And then they put it, verse 10, The Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. 18, we get some technical duties for the priests and Levites. 19, some laws for purification. Some of this is very similar to Leviticus. But in chapter 20, it gets very interesting. When we hit chapter 20, we're at the end of 40 years. I know, surprising, isn't it? When you hit chapter 40, you're at the last year of wandering. So chapter 14, God says you're going to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Chapter 20, we're at the end. You just went through 40 years really quick. Which is this lesson. When we refuse God's plan for our lives, and we choose instead to go... In the mindless, easy living of the wandering cycle in the wilderness, nothing happens except for one rebellion. Nothing happens. You want to live a boring life? Keep refusing God's plan. There's nothing noteworthy for the person who wanders aimlessly in the wilderness of this life. So, we're already there. And now... We're going to see some deaths. The people of Israel came uh, to the congregation. Uh, basically, Miriam dies in chapter 20. In chapter 22, Aaron dies. I'm sorry, uh, verse 22 of chapter 20. Aaron dies. He goes up to the mountain. And his high priesthood transition to his son. He dies. It says that Israel wept 30 days for Aaron in verse 29. All the house wept 30 days. I want you to notice in verse 1 of chapter 20, there's no mention of weeping for Miriam when she dies. This may be important to what happens next. So, in verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation. They assembled, they quarreled, they complained. We've seen this before. Last time, Moses struck the rock and water came out. This time, God asked Moses... To do it a little bit differently. Verse 6. Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell forth time on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation. What staff? The staff. Aaron's staff. The one that has cherry, or, I'm sorry, almond blossoms on it. Take that one. Remember why it was stored away? To remind the rebels not to grumble against me. Here they're grumbling against God. And so take the staff to remind them of my symbol of choosing you guys. So take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock from the congregation and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So 
You've hit the rock the first time. That was back in Exodus 17. This time you're going to speak to this rock. 40 years later, just talk to it. Moses and Aaron, verse 10, gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Oops. Uh, Not quite how God told them to do it. Now, verse 12, the Lord said, Moses, go to your room, we're chatting. Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore... You shall not bring this assembly into the land that I gave them. Ouch. And it's just like that. We're done. Moses, you're not going in the promised land. This is at the end of 40 years. Moses has put up with everything. He successfully and honorably endured the rebellion of Korah. Finally, some, they cry like babies for water. He loses his cool. He strikes a rock with a rod Calls them rebels, and God's like, you're done. Overreaction? It feels like it. But I see a lesson here, which we're going to get to. So, has your ambition gone too far? Shall we visit Korah and take some lessons? Three signs your ambition has gone too far. Korah, by the way, went too far. I don't know if you got that. Moses told him, you have gone too far. Sign number one, that your ambition has gone too far. It's all about you. It's all about you. Verse three, of course, it's, it's all over this section. It's all about Korah. They assembled themselves together. This is 16.3. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy. Every one of them, listen to them, we're so holy, we're just like you. You're no better than us. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Well, behind all that is jealousy and rivalry. When, when life is all about you, when ambition is driving you too far, life becomes all about you. And when life is all about you, it becomes about being jealous of other people's successes. And when you're jealous of other people's successes, you tend to establish a rivalry against everybody else who's a threat and a success in the thing you're trying to be a success. And it's all about Korah. That's why he's got a bunch of followers based upon their common disapproval of Moses' leadership. What kind of fellowship is that? Commonality about what you don't like. He gets this cheap, he gets this cheap following It's all about him. I feel good about myself now. I'm not going to the promised land, but at least I got followers. And now he's jealous of Moses and Aaron, and he attacks them. You know your ambition has gone too far when life is all about you. It's driving you rather than supporting you. Second sign your ambition has gone too far. Grumbling replaces gratitude. Your ambition has gone too far when grumbling replaces gratitude. 
Korah. You are known by some of the most influential people in Israel. 250 of them will follow you. You have access to the tabernacle and work amongst the things of it. You have a lot to be grateful for. Nope, it's not enough. I want to be Aaron. So he grumbles instead of finds what he's grateful for. You can revisit that in 16 verse 9. Uh, it's, it's Moses who's pointing this out to him. 69. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do this service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? Is that too small of a thing? God chose you and your family to do this work and to, and to help other people in Israel see God and worship him. Is that too small of a thing? Corey, you are privileged and blessed beyond measure. How are you not seeing this? Because his ambition has gone too far. And rather than being grateful for what he gets to do, he's now grumbling about it. Well, it's not good enough. It's not what Aaron did. I'm putting in more hours than Aaron does, yet he continues to get exalted as the best one. Hmm. You notice, when your ambition is leading you, you begin to expect entitlement I'm do my own. I put in the work. And I've done a lot more than Aaron has. Aaron took a vacation last week. He goes home half an hour early to play with kids. I have done overtime all week. Hmm. So what? Good for you. You should be happy that you get to do overtime in this great position you have. Instead, it's a source of grumbling. I'm not, I'm not exalted enough. Uh, when you can no longer say, I can't believe I get to serve God this way. I can't believe I get to do this. And when we instead start to, s- to complain and say it's not good enough, you know that ambition is taking you too far. You're feeling like you are owed something. Third sign that your ambition is taking you too far is in verse 32 of chapter 16. Verse 32 of chapter 16. The third sign is... That the price, remember how you can accomplish just about anything if you're willing to pay the price? Well, when the price outweighs the prize, your ambition is taking you too far. And look at this. The price Cora pays, I would suggest, is way too costly for what he wants. Uh, where, what did I say? Verse 32. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. What did it cost Korah to pursue one more step up the ladder of the priesthood? It cost him his family. It cost him his possessions. This is a very tall tale sign that your ambition is taking you too far when the price it's demanding for you to reach the prize is far too heavy. When that price outweighs the prize, far too heavy. And this death, it was not worth his family so that he could be a little bit further inside the tabernacle. Those are three signs. Now, Korah's ambition took him too far, and he got burned. Like him and his followers, they definitely got burned. They got consumed 
by their ambition. Literally, fire from the Lord consumes them. Um, perhaps you have felt this. Perhaps at some point in your life, you have gone too far. And you have felt the burn from that. It's really easy. Or you've, you've watched it. You've watched other people go too far and say, that just proves I should do nothing. It's really important that we realize that just as too much ambition is dangerous, too little ambition is also dangerous. I want to suggest that that's what happens to Moses in chapter 20. When he strikes the rock with the rod, he loses his edge. He blows a gasket. He gets angry. Miriam dies just before this. We've seen that Korah rebels. Even when God shows that Moses is the proper leader, the congregation wants to rebel until they see the cloud coming. Oh, second thought. Um, look, Moses has been going through a lot for 40 years, a lot of disappointment, a lot of frustration. Now his sister Miriam dies, and we don't have a single record of grieving for her loss. Things are mounting. They're building up. Moses is coming to the end of a very, very challenging journey. Has he thrown in the towel? Has he decided, I'm getting too old for this. I'm tired of these people. Seriously? We've already gone through the quarreling for water at the rock thing. That was way, people read your Bible, that was Exodus 17. Um, then he takes the staff and he whacks it against the rock out of anger. He calls them rebels. You're going to see all of this frustration just comes pouring out like water from the rock. It just comes pouring out. The reason I'm suggesting that he is on the other end of ambition, he's losing his ambition later on, is because one of the things that ambition is good for is it takes this frustration and this anger we all possess about life. And it channels it into positivity. Now, I'm not an angry person. I'm a very docile person. No, 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 you are. If you are not angry at where the world is going, you're in denial. Every human has anger over something. Someone hasn't treated you the way you expect. The world isn't the way it should be. You see injustice. You see war. You were cheated on. You didn't get the promotion you deserved. The world didn't give you what you thought you should work, what you worked for when it gave your friend everything and he didn't work for any of it. Somewhere in your, there's anger in all of us. Some of us just have a lot more levels than others. But the beautiful thing about anger is that it becomes an amazing drive to do amazing things. Some of the most um, energetic people who have accomplished the most in life, I have found, are also some of the most angry people. Now, their anger is in check. That's why they're accomplishing a lot. It has now become the energy for them to accomplish. But woe to that moment when they stop channeling that energy into accomplishing and start taking it out in frustration. Now it becomes really, really, really dangerous. 
And I'm suggesting that Moses blows up here because he has lost the heart. There's no more direction. They haven't made progress for 40 years. There is, there's no ambition in that life and for that poor leader. And now it's coming out on the people. So on one hand, um, your ambition can take you too far and it can bring devastation. On the other hand, your ambition can take you not far enough and cause devastation on the people around you because you're frustrated and now you've got to start taking out somewhere. Brothers and sisters, there's a balance that is needed. There's a balance that's needed. We need ambition. We just need to keep it in check. Now, all ambition is, is it's the desire to do something and the motivation to stick with it. That's all it is. It doesn't mean that you want to be the next president of the United States or the next Napoleon of the Western world or the next, I don't know, Tom Hanks, Tim Burton of Hollywood. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means you have a purpose. You're not wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You're now going toward God's plan. And you have the energy to stick with it. That's what ambition is. Just don't let it take you too Far. And please, please, please don't have no ambition because you'll just take your frustrations in life out on others. Um, so here's my practical advice for you on how to juggle and balance ambition in your life. Learn to go on a road trip with your ambition. Go on a road trip with it. You're already on a road trip. Without ambition, your road trip's going to stop way before, way before you get to where you go, oh, this is, I can't keep driving, this is too boring. It's like the gas in your car. You need ambition to take the road trip. But you do not want ambition to grab the steering wheel. Take it along for the ride. You need it. It's a great companion in the back of the car. But as soon as you let it come to the front and crawl on up and start adjusting the temperature, stop that. Changing the radio songs. No, no, I like that one. Or grabbing the steering wheel. Or grabbing the map and suggesting a detour here or a trip there. As soon as you let ambition drive, you are a Korah. So please, by all means, God has given us these energies and these drives and these dreams and these desires. Take it with you, but keep it where it belongs. Jesus belongs with you in navigating this road trip. Don't let ambition put him in the back seat. You keep ambition back there. Let it talk. Let it do all that, but don't let it make choices. So, we need it. But we need to make sure that we don't let it overcome us. Uh, so you have your three signs. Keep it all about me? No, don't do that. Keep it all about Jesus. Notice also that, yeah, keep it all about Jesus. Just the attention, like Moses did. He just, you know what? If you guys are trying to rebel, fine. Like, let's keep the attention on God and not on me and me trying to defend myself. Um... Keep reminding yourself of what you're grateful for. Start looking at all the good things that are going on in your life. Focus on those. At the minute we stop appreciating and expressing gratitude for what God is doing, ambition's going to slither on up to the front seat. 
and it's going to start grumbling. You knew you should have taken the 40. You knew you should have taken it. This is a miserable highway. Um, and, yeah, everything we're going for costs us something. But know your boundaries and limits. What are you willing to sacrifice? Even if we're serving God, is it worth sacrificing the people around you that you've been given responsibility to raise or love or nurture or take care of? We need to ask hard questions sometimes. What is the limit here? What are my priorities? Don't let ambition settle that because it's all about you when ambition is leading. Let Jesus lead us there. And then we'll know what price it's worth paying. Um, So go on a road trip with your ambition, but don't let it drive. And we'll be okay. We'll be okay. So we need it. We need more Moseses. We need more people who are willing to go and do something for Jesus. But we also don't want these people to get big heads and then to start to ruin the people around them and try to be God themselves. We don't need more Korahs. We don't need more of those. So um, let's pray.